Hello, and welcome to the Business of Freelancing. Today, we're joined by Annie Duke. She's a former professional poker player, author, speaker, and decision-making consultant. We're going to talk to Annie about her new book, How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices, and how you can improve your decision-making process to feel more confident, second-guess yourself less, and ultimately be more decisive and be more productive. On today's episode, we have Jeremy Green. Hey, y'all. Ruben Lerner. Hi, everyone. Meg Cumby. Hey, folks. And I'm your host, Kai Davis. And today we're joined by Annie Duke. Kicking things off, uh, we wanted to ask, what led you to write this book? You've written other books on decision-making, uh, your wonderful thinking and bets, but this is much more, at least in our reading, it felt more for like a general wider audience. Uh, what drew you to writing it in this way? Yeah, actually, that's a really good question. It's So I feel like, whether it's Thinking in Bets or this book, that a lot of my writing process is actually conversations with people that I'm talking to. So, um, you know, leading up to Thinking in Bets, I was doing lots of keynoting um, and then also consulting and sort of trainings where I'm, I'm interacting with people, sort of talking through these topics And, you know, I think people would be surprised to know that even when you're up on stage, like giving a speech, it's very much still a conversation with the audience because I have eyes and ears and I can kind of see like, what are they responding to? What aren't they responding to when they come up afterwards and they're asking me questions? What are the questions that they're asking about my material? So, so thinking and bets kind of came up out of that conversation with, with people that I was working with on, you know, decision-making under uncertainty. And the same is true of how to decide. So basically what happened was, um, you know, I love my readers and they reach out to me. Um, I encourage anybody to do so. I really do try to respond to all of it. I'm probably 90%, but I think that's pretty good. You know, sometimes things get buried, but I do try to respond to everybody. And through conversations with uh, readers and again, you know, people who I was speaking to, what I discovered was that there just sort of seemed to be like a hunger for how. Meaning when I think about sort of thinking in bets, it's this conversation about, you know, uncertainty with a, with a particular focus on luck um, and how, and it just kind of this idea of like, you really have to be thinking about that in your decision-making and it really caught, it, it like causes a lot of mischief in the way that we sort of build models of the world and we think about why things happened, why they do, and sort of what the quality of our decisions are. And we need to start to embrace that more and recognize that there's a lot of uncertainty um, out in the world. So I would think of that as sort of like a why or an argument, you know, or a treatise on uncertainty. There's a little bit of how sprinkled in there at the end, probably a little more than some other books in the space, just because I, I am a consultant. So I think in the how, but there wasn't that much of it. And I found that people wanted more of that. Okay, so I get it. There's, there's luck, there's uncertainty, there's hidden information. This is all really messing my decisions up. Okay, so could you explain to me, like, how do you actually figure out what are you supposed to learn from your outcomes? How do you figure out how you would construct a really good decision process? How do you figure out how you would solve this imperfect information problem and really start to fill in the gaps of your knowledge? And one of the really nice things that came out of that was that... Um, you know, again, I think thinking in bets was much more an exploration of the luck side. But the interesting thing about luck is you can't do anything about it. You can just see it clearly. Uh, the thing you can really do something about when you're thinking about a how 
is the imperfect information, the hidden information. So I feel like this book ended up being much more of an exploration of that. But I never would have written it if it weren't for people asking me for that. Yeah, I almost saw this as like the 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 workbook that you should complete after after thinking in bed. So it was awesome. So you know what, Meg, it's, that's actually quite astute of you. So I so when I first was thinking about it, having so many people be like, how 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 you know how would I do this? Um, I actually went to my publisher, and what I pitched was called the Thinking in Bets Workbook. Um, so you spotted that. So, so basically, um, literally, if you were to look at the proposal, what you would see is a proposal that lines up kind of like section by section with thinking in bats, which is like, here's an exercise that you would do for this. Here's an exercise that you would do for this. That was really didn't have a lot of writing in it. It, w- it was really just kind of like exercises that lined up to thinking in bats. So I think before I really got really much started at all on the writing process, my editor, who I totally love, said to me, hey, what do you think about decoupling it from thinking in bets? Because I think that this could really have a much wider audience. And I don't necessarily want someone to think that they had to have read that book in order to really read this book. Um, And so I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Sure. Uh, So I did that. And it ended up being, so now it's like a, it, it went from being a workbook to like a book with thought experiments, exercises, tools in it, because it couldn't just be a workbook anymore because now I had to write around it a lot. So that was kind of the first thing that came from it was that it turned into a book as opposed to a workbook, uh, which ended up, by the way, let me just say, taking like twice as much time as I, the other thing would have, <laughs> that the workbook would have been a lot easier. Um, the second thing that turned out to be like way harder was once she had this idea, which I think was totally brilliant, right? I mean, I think she it was a great idea that she had. I now had this problem of, of well, I don't want to bore people who've read Thinking in Bats, but I also don't want to confuse people who haven't. So uh, it turns out that that's a really like narrow alley that you have to sort of like turn sideways and squish through um, in order to actually strike that balance. But I think that what was really good about that was that while that made the task much more difficult, it actually is what caused me to really take a left turn away from thinking in bets and tar- start to explore all this like brand new material. So uh, both thinking in bets and how to decide start with this kind of resulting problem, kind of what do you know about your outcomes? Um, but then as soon as I sort of make that intro, which you have to, like there's no way for you to talk about the topic without dealing with that problem first. But once you do that, and I, and I handle it with a lot more nuance in a new way, but once I do that, it takes kind of a hard left. And all of a sudden, it covers really basically almost all new ground from what Thinking in Bets does, which I think actually makes this a much better book. Um, not than Thinking in Bets, I mean, than it would, than the Thinking in Bets workbook that I was, compared to the Thinking in Bets workbook that I was thinking about. Um, but it did end up taking me quite a bit longer. I blew through like the deadline by, I don't know, about six months or something. But to be fair, my my editor did realize like, oh, I just asked her to do something really different. And so she wasn't she wasn't really holding my feet to the fire. For for one thing, I think that original contract had me writing like 30,000 words, maybe. <laughs> In this book, it's like 60,000 words. So anyway, that's the that's the story. But you're Meg, that was that was astute. It started off as it was supposed to just be a workbook and then it turned into this whole other thing. 
I, I wish I wish I'd only been six months late with my book. So very impressive. <laughs> well, I was I was six weeks early with thinking in bet, so this was a little bit of a horror Whoa. show for me. Just cognitively, but but yeah, it was you know what she kept saying to me because everybody's late with their book. Don't worry about it. You you touched on resulting uh uh just a bit ago. And I'm curious, before we dive into the concept of resulting, uh could you tell our listeners a bit about how people evaluate whether a decision they made was good or bad or why it's flawed? So it's actually kind of, that's, it's a little bit complex. So let me try to just sort of simplify um, to start with. So let's just talk about uh, your, you're evaluating somebody else's decision. Cause that's just kind of like cognitively the easiest. It's kind of the most separate from yourself. Um, and when you're evaluating other people's decisions, you, you do, you tend to do this thing called resulting, um, which is basically, uh, trying to sort of figure out what the quality of a decision is, particularly in retrospect is actually quite difficult to do. Um, you would actually have to draw out a probabilistic decision tree in order to really be able to do it and then calculate out some weighted averages and things like it's hard. So, um, so because all of that is somewhat opaque to us, we take this just, mental shortcut. It's a heuristic that says, well, if I know what the quality of the outcome is, I I know what the quality of the decision is. So I I think there's one like amazing example of this right now, uh, which I think is really relevant to the time that we're living in, um, which has to do with Clinton's campaign strategy in 2016. So uh, I think it's pretty, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's pretty universally agreed that she she really bungled it and made a really big mistake in relation to Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Um, so universal, actually, that there's, a, I actually have a clip that I now play in presentations of uh, Biden talking to Megyn Kelly on, was she on the Today Show? Um, um, where she's saying, but, you know, you have to admit, like, she she didn't go to those states. Like, that was a mistake, right? And he's saying, yes, that was definitely a mistake. So I, I feel like people are pretty much in agreement here that she made a really big mistake. So obviously, she was campaigning much more in, like, Florida, in New Hampshire. She was spending time in Arizona, in North Carolina, sort of more so than these three Rust Belt states. So... What's really interesting about that, though, is that, I, you know, I decided I was going to do a Google search. I was like, well, hmm, let, let me see what people are saying. Let me see what people are really saying about this, like during the election. Um, and when I Googled, you know, basically just Clinton, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, um, there's tons and tons of articles that come up, all of which are incredibly critical, um, saying that she made a mistake, you know, in her campaign strategy. But the weird thing is the first one is on November 9th of 2016. Anyone want to say why that's an important date? (laughs) After the election. Exactly. The election was on November 8th. So, I mean, I think this is, this is such a good example of resulting because, because here's the thing about presidential elections. And I think we can all feel it right now. Like literally everyone is writing about Biden's strategy. Everyone's writing about Trump's strategy right now. Like the smartest people in the room are writing about this stuff. Political consultants, like every Silicon Valley data science dude is like crawling out to write pieces about it. Right. So, um, you know, journalists like political observers, you know, it's, it's all it's, it's CNN. That's all they talk about all day long. So, yeah, I mean, we can kind of think about like particularly national presidential campaigns are about as crowdsourced as you get in terms of decisions. So. I just want to know, like, maybe you don't agree with me. I, my personal feeling is that 
Um, if something is a, such a big mistake, when basically all the data is out there for everybody to see, because we can all see the polls, right? I mean, I can go look on Real Clear Politics and, and 538, whatever, I can get all of those polling averages. So I can see the data, right? And so can everybody else. Uh, and everybody's writing about it. That if something were like a ginormous mistake that someone would have written about it before November 9th, I just kind of feel that as it seems like that's not super controversial what I'm saying. Um, and yet you don't see this. You don't see anybody saying it beforehand. And we can imagine like really easily, I mean, she lost those three states combined by, I think, slightly less than 80,000 votes across three states. It's pretty big states. We can imagine like very easily do the thought experiment if she just like wins all three of those states and it's, you know, nobody's saying that she made some sort of huge mistake. And we have to remember what the polls were saying at the time. She was, she had pretty comfy leads. Like it seemed like outside of the margin of error, at least that the polls were saying they had um, across those three states. But like Florida was polling kind of as a toss up. It turned out it was a toss up. Um, New Hampshire was polling as a toss out. Turns out it was a toss up. Uh, nationally, she was polling about two to three points ahead. That's actually where it, it exactly landed. Um, and it turns out there was specifically a problem with the sampling of white, non-college educated voters. But nobody could know, you can't know that before the fact. That's kind of the problem. The whole point of a polling error is that you find out about it afterwards. And we need to say, like, for something to be a mistake, you have to think about what's the knowledge that's going into the decision at the time. And, you know, I mean, everybody was working with the same knowledge and nobody was saying anything beforehand. So I don't, so the, I think that's just like a really powerful example of resulting. Yeah. As I was working through some of the questions in the book, it struck, just struck me over and over how hard it is to untangle the evaluation of the result from the evaluation of the decision. And I think just as a culture, we are really bought into the idea that, well, if things worked out well for you, then you obviously made a good decision. And that's not always the case, but it's really, really hard to kind of break that and be able to evaluate those as two different things. Well, I, I think it's so strong as a matter of fact that, uh, you know, I, I kind of put it in the category of visual illusions because you know, if you've ever seen a really good visual illusion, like, I mean, there's one, for example, where there's two line drawings of cubes. Those cubes are stationary. And then the background is flashing. Um, and our visual system perceives those cubes to be spinning. They're not. They're just, they're not spinning. They're, they're totally stationary. It's just the background flashing makes us see that. And the thing is, I, I can explain this to you. You know, I could... Uh, stop the background from flashing so that you could see like you now, you know, you can see that these cubes aren't moving. But as soon as I start that background flashing again, no matter what I said to you, you're going to see those cubes spinning. And I feel that way about resulting as well, because here, here's the thing that I can tell you. I've gone through, for example, the Pete Carroll example, you know, he calls the past play. It's intercepted. He loses Super Bowl to, you know, to, in 2015, that Super Bowl 49 to the Patriots. I know what the decision tree looks like. I know it was a very good decision. I can work out all of the expected values and whatnot. I know it's a great decision. I play that video. I st still, there's something in me that's like, oh, what a mistake. When I think about Clinton, it's very hard for me not to see that as a mistake because I know how it turned out as, as improbable as the result was. 
And I think that if you were to construct, build out that decision tree of her literally being swept in those three states, it was very low percentage. I think it was it. Um, it was either Wisconsin, I think it was Wisconsin, she lost by like 10,000 votes or something, it was very small. So, um, you know, that particular map appearing was very a very low percentage map to be the one that actually occurred, even with the polling error, by the way. it was It's still a pretty surprising result. Um, but I, it's hard not to unsee it. And then these examples come up all, all the time. I actually have two in relation to this book, which, you know, and these are people who like really know my work. So I just had a discussion with my agent about having sold this book as a workbook, which it turned out not to be. Um, and I said, oh, you know, I think that we need to think about that going forward because we sold it as a workbook and the economics on a workbook are just different. And really, in reality, this probably should have been a hardcover, you know, a bigger trim hardcover. But as it turns out, the way that it was written, I probably, it probably at some point should have said, hey, maybe this should be a hardcover. But I kind of didn't realize that until retrospect. He said, well, we won't make that mistake again. And I said, no, it wasn't a mistake because I only found that out after the fact, after I'd sort of written the book and figured out that I'm just not a workbook writer, right? When you ask me for 30,000 words, I give you 60,000 words. This is kind of the way that I write. But now having done two books, I sort of realized that because even with Thinking and Bets, they were asking me for a 50,000 word book and it's about a 66,000 word book or so, or 68, I think. So I just tend to write kind of long. And I said, now that I know that, but he still said, oh, we want that because this is the way that we sort of think. A another example was um, I had a misprint with how to decide. Nothing I could control. The, the, the printers are, during COVID have been a complete mess. There's been higher demand than ever for books, as it turns out. Um, and because of COVID, you have limited staff on, on the floor because obviously it's inside. And it's just causing all the printer industry has just had all sorts of problems that it's, you know, it's just like, what are you going to do? It's COVID. But uh, due to that, um, 20 pages of the first printing of how to decide were repeated, and then 20 pages were missing. So it was originally supposed to come out on September 15th. They ended up having to push it to October 13th. So I'm having a discussion with um, the publisher because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to process this because I could have released this in like May, June, or July if I wanted to, but I chose September specifically because most people don't want to release into an election. And so books that would have been really competitive with my book were getting uh, were, were all sort of piled into like May, June and July. So I said, you know, I think with Thinking and Bets, I have enough of an audience to kind of risk September. But it was kind of like, I don't know if you remember that Steve Martin thing, what, you know, thing where he goes like never at dawn or never dusk, never at dusk or whatever. Like He kind of gets down to, but don't do it at dusk. Um, it was kind of but but don't don't do don't release this book in October. Right. So this was all the thinking way back. I think we settled on the date in November of last year. It was like, do not release it into October. And of course, here I am releasing it to October. So I was just kind of having that discussion with my publisher who then said, so books that got released in June, it was a very difficult time as it turned out to release books because of the um, protests. Um, and there just wasn't like it turned out that there wasn't a lot of space for books that weren't about racial justice. And so it was just hard for someone to, to, you know, sort of get some notice at that time. Um, and that's just kind of how it, you know, that was just sort of the way it was then. But anyway, my publisher said to me, oh, but this is good because it would have been a mistake to release it in June. <laughs> and I was like, no, I, was, I literally said, have you read my book? <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask, I was just going to ask if the, if, if the publisher had read the book. But... 
Right. So, you know, but, but the thing is that this is natural. Like, I mean, Jeremy, to your point, this is natural. It's just kind of, it's the way that we process information. And it very much is a cognitive illusion. And we have to work really hard to overcome it. There are things that you can do in retrospect to help. Like I could map out the probabilities of any of those election maps or the reasonable election maps occurring. And that's going to help me to get it in context because I can't understand what an outcome means unless I get it into the context of the other things that could have occurred. So I could try doing that in retrospect. Another thing that I could do is I could try to reconstruct the state of knowledge that I had or the decision maker had at the time of the decision. We did that a little bit with Clinton, right? Like the, the polls were her state of knowledge. So the, the, the polling and how you model those polls are going to be the state of knowledge. Uh, what isn't in your knowledge set there is that there is a that there is a systematic polling error only in those three states. Remember, this isn't nationwide. It's not peculiar to every state. It happens to be a problem with these states. Um, uh, Texas, by the way, had a polling error in the wrong direction also. So it wasn't like it was only going in one direction. Virginia also very much went much more in Clinton's favor than was suspected. So it wasn't even like a consistent polling error in one direction. So you could try to do that. You could try to reconstruct your own or somebody else's state of knowledge. So you can try to do all of that stuff in retrospect. Of course, the real solution is to do all that when you're making the decision, right? Is to say, um, you know, the, the way that I can look at the Clinton example and say, oh, this is an example of resulting is that I Google. So we, there is a record, right? I, I can go and I can look and I can say, well, what were people saying at the time? Was anybody pointing out at the time that this was a mistake? Were the models saying this was a mistake? Were people like Nate Silver, who know how to freaking model an election, screaming that she needs to be going and, and, and uh, campaigning, you know, spending all of her time in Pennsylvania? And the answer is no. So that's because I can go and look. So a little bit what that gives us, you know, a glimpse into is that while we can sort of solve some of this stuff in retrospect, it's really better to do to have a decision process that naturally produces a way for you to Google your own decision making. Um, and the more that you can do that, the more that you can kind of, you're not going to be able to unsee the cognitive illusion, but you're not going to make as many decisions that are based on the cognitive illusion. Right. I do remember actually Nate Silver, like uh, four years ago, he gave Trump way, way higher chances than anyone else. And people were furious with him. And afterwards, and people were like, but you said he only had a 30% chance. How did he win? And he said, so I'm like, would you get into an airplane that had a 30% chance of crashing? No, like it still is a chance. And people are just really bad at this probabilistic thinking and things happen. Like there is still luck. And so you can have all the planning in the world and things still might go awry. Yeah. So yeah. The, so I, the example that I used was if you had a gun with thirty bullets in in a hundred chambers, you know, there's a hundred chambers and you put thirty bullets in there. Are you playing Russian roulette? Because I don't think so. And and I think this is something poker players like really kind of can understand really deeply. Like two percent is two percent. It's not zero. You're going to see it two percent of the time. Thirty percent is thirty percent. Now, do I want to take a seventy thirty like all day long? Sure, absolutely. I'm going to make all the money in the world. But it doesn't mean that on the particular iteration that I observe, that it means that the 70% is going to hit all the time. If that were the case, it would be 100-0, which it's not. But I think that part of the problem, you know, I think about that, like, I, I actually, I think a really good analogy has it's sort of thinking about the weather, right? Like you forecast a 30% chance of rain, but it settles to one or zero. Like it either rains or it doesn't. 
So I think that that's just really hard for people, right? That prospectively, we kind of understand like 30 times out of 100 in the forecast area, there'll be rain somewhere within that region. You know, I think that people are kind of okay with that. But in the, then in the end, it either rains or it doesn't. It's just, it settles to one or zero. You win or you lose, it rains or it doesn't. You know, and obviously this is the case with presidential campaigns, right? It, it's going to settle to one or zero. So I, I just think that then a different part of your brain starts to kick in and it's this interpreter part of your brain that's trying to figure out the causality. Why did this thing happen? Because we want the world to be ordered and to make sense, right? And um, some people more so than others. Some people are allowed more willing to sort of leave those threads open than others. And it seems to be correlated with like how you do on a cognitive reflection test or active open-mindedness or that kind of thing seems to tell you a little bit about how much you need those causal sort of loops to close for you. And you, you don't want to sort of leave them open and leave them to luck. But regardless, we all, we all have that part of our brain kind of turning on as soon as you know the result. And it's just, it's hard. It's hard to kind of un, undo that, you know? If you want to know why people believe in conspiracy theories, it's just this kind of resulting stuff on steroids. It's just not allowing randomness into the equation. And you would rather have like a super complicated explanation for something that's like the, the you know, fails Occam's razor completely when the simplest and most elegant solution is it's luck, it's random, stuff happens, right? But we would prefer these very, very complex you know, explanations that don't allow luck into the equation. And I, I think that part of the reason is not just like we like to make sense of the world, you know, and obviously that helped us when we were like evolving. But I think it's also sort of ties back into these things like illusion of control and this idea that we're masters of our own destiny and, you know, we can make things happen for ourselves. And um, if, if things happen for random reasons, like how much masters of our own destiny do we get to think that we are? How much control do we get to feel that we have over our futures? And I think it's unsatisfying to most people to say, sure, there's a lot of luck, but if you repeatedly over time make lots of good decisions, those those gains are going to accrue. And in the long run, you're going to have really good results. They want to feel like they control control the next thing that happens. So, you know, I mean, I, I just, it's just like, it's a mucking everything up. That makes sense. You've got so many great, like, I think you, you outline a lot of the biases that help like that cloud our decision-making in the book. And then also like, here's how to counter those biases with these sort of like different techniques. Um, and I think it would be awesome if we could like share a little bit with the, I, I, it would be great if everybody could just have this in their brain, <laughs> but um, <laughs> like immediately, I feel like I want like this flow chart to always like, you know, out of all the exercises to guide all my decisions. But one of the things I, I, that kind of stuck out to me was like getting that outside view to balance the inside view as a technique, um, outside view being obviously outside perspective, but um one of the pieces of advice that I think a lot of my fellow freelancers and I have traded around is like, trust your gut, like when you're not sure about doing something. Um, and it was really uh, interesting to, uh, to see, uh, I think the way you put it in the book was like, uh, your intuition and your gut is like infected by what you want to be true. <laughs> and so like, but like, what, what role do you think like intuition should play in those decisions or like how, how limited of a role? Yeah. So, so, okay. 
gut on its own is a really crappy decision tool because it's not a tool. So let's just sort of step back a little bit and say what what exactly is a tool. Um, A tool is some sort of implement or instrument that you can use uh, reliably for the same purpose to produce the same result where you can then go back and examine how you used it to see if you used it properly and you got the result that you wanted. And this is very important. I can give the tool to somebody else and they should be able to reliably produce the same result using the same tool or similar results using the same tool. So like Ruben, I should be able to hand you a screwdriver and say, I know you've never seen one of these before, but let, let me explain to you what it's for. And I can explain to you the good uses of it. I can say, look, you, you could use the back end of it to try to pound something into the wall. It's, it's not going to be a great use of the tool, but you could do that. That would be like a secondary use of this thing. Um, I suppose you could use it as a weapon. Uh, please don't. Um, but mostly what we want to do is use it to put, you know, to, to put screws in, into things, right? So, but I could explain it to you. I can show it to you. I can explain it to you. you I could then hand it off to you, walk away, and come back and say, oh, look, you, there's a screw in the wall. That's great. Um, so I, I think it should be obvious to people then when, when you start to think about gut, the gut is kind of the opposite of that, right? It's, it's a black box. It kind of runs in a way that's not really examinable. I mean, just by the fact that if somebody says, well, you know, why, how did you make that decision? Oh, well, my gut told me so. Okay. Well, that's not particularly helpful to me. I don't, that doesn't teach me anything. I can't use that. I obviously, I mean, you can't say here, you take my gut decisions and, and now you can make those too. That doesn't, that's literally a nonsense sentence. It's not even a sentence of English, basically. Um, so, and we know that your gut is not going to reliably produce the same result over and over again. Daniel Kahneman is about to come out with a book in the spring, which is literally on that topic that our decisions are full of noise. This is different than bias. It's just like this randomness. Like if I catch you, uh, you know, one day and ask you to make a, a subjective judgment and then I catch you three weeks later and ask you to make the exact same subjective judgment, they won't even match. This is you, the same person. That's We're not even talking about different people using their gut, right? Like he's literally about to produce like a 400-page book about why your gut stinks as, as a decision tool. Okay. So, so what we would like to do is always be able to examine our decision process, like basically as an object and to see, are we using the right tool for the right job in the right way? That's going to kind of reliably going to get, get us to what is as close to possible as what, what's like a, would objectively be the best judgment, what would objectively be true of the world. Now I want to say though, that that doesn't mean that I don't think you should ever make gut or intuitive decisions. It's that you need to be able to, um, well, first of all, you need to understand what a robust decision-making process would look like, number one. So you'd have to understand if I weren't to use my gut, what would be the way to actually construct a really good decision? So if you don't have that, you know, it's like when you first start driving and it's like you have to think about where's the accelerator, where's the brake, how do I shift, which side of the road am I supposed to be on? How do I tell how far from the center line I am or the curb? If I have to turn, when should I start slowing down? And you're really kind of understanding in this very deliberative way what that process is. So you need to have that for decision-making as well. What would it look like if I were really deliberative about my decision-making? And then sometimes you can absolutely go with your gut. And in fact, kind of chapter seven of my book is all about like, when should you be going fast? 
The key though is that whatever's happening, if you go with your intuition, you have to be able to go back, back and reconstruct what it, what is it? What were the actual options? What were the possibilities? What were my assumptions that were going into that very sort of quick, intuitive decision that I was making such that you can examine it like an object and hopefully other people could examine it like an object too. So you could see that they might've come to a different conclusion. And, and just the idea that you might be held accountable to something actually is a debiasing tool. So that's going to help to get your gut into a better place. But what that allows you to do is basically because you're sort of, you're creating a feedback loop is that the places where your gut is kind of leading you to bad or suboptimal choices, you can now examine and you can sort of fix it and create a better loop for that. And the places where it's doing a pretty good job, like driving, you can kind of leave that running on its own. And you can also figure out, you can take a step back on kind of a second order level and say, what type of decision am I facing? Because is a pretty good job okay? Or do I need something that's much more than a pretty good job here, where I need something that's a little bit more maximally good? And for a lot of decisions, like a pretty good job is okay. So a lot of things you are going to use your gut and go fast. It's just that you're going to have a way to go back and look at it and say, it doesn't get to be the last answer, which I think is the, the big problem. You know, just like, well, I trust my gut. And it's like, okay, that's impenetrable. I have no way to disprove. I don't even know what that means. So, so that, I mean, it's complicated, but the, the issue of intuition is complicated, I think. So you, you spend a, a fair amount of time in, in the book talking about trying to get outside opinions, right? Like what the outside perspective is. And you talk about, you know, uh, you should, you should ask for them and, and people are grateful for getting it. So I remember in grad school, I had a friend who said, if I respect you, I'm going to argue with you. Um, and if I don't respect you, then I'm just going to sort of, you know, not argue. I'll just say yes, whatever. And this is a very rare and uh, somewhat, I don't know, uh, antisocial kind of behavior. Most people are not excited to be challenged at everything they do. Um, and yet we are grateful when people, to some degree, point out where we're wrong. So how do we approach giving that sort of feedback, treading that fine line between giving useful feedback without over-the-top insulting. Oh, gosh, this is, okay, we could literally spend, like, the whole podcast just talking about this. <laughs> so first of all, let me just say, let's take argue out of the, the thing. Because I, I think that when we say the word argue, there's conveying information and convincing people of your side. And I think as soon as you use the word argue, you go into convince mode. And convince mode is me interrupting you, me telling you you're wrong, me telling you the data you haven't paid attention to or what, you know, like all the different ways in which you're biased and you're not applying the right model and you haven't thought about the base rates. And like, you know, that gets into me trying to get you over to my side. And frankly, if I disagree with you, it's as important for me to explore your point of view as it is for you to explore mine. Because... I think it's just as likely, I'm assuming that you're pretty well-informed and smart. It's just as likely that I need to somehow moderate my opinion as it is that you need to moderate yours. So as soon as somebody says, if I'm your friend, I'm going to argue with you, you're starting from a very bad place because what you're saying is, I think I'm right and I'm going to try to argue with you to convince you of all the reasons why you're you're not right. And I, I actually think that, that's a, it, that it's just not productive. I think it's a lot of the problem with politics right now 
So I think we need to step back and say, well, what's the goal of the conversation? Because if the goal of the conversation to is, is to inform, then both members, people in the conversation need to be coming from that standpoint of becoming better informed. And frankly, by the way, I mean, let's just start with this. There's kind of three things that can be true if we're on opposite ends of an opinion. The first thing that, that's likely true is that probably the truth lies in between the two of us. So we both want to be informed by what the other person is thinking because that allows us both to moderate. That's usually going to be the case. You know, but like some sometimes it's a flat earther versus a round earther and there's one person who actually, actually has the right position. I'm not saying that that is never the case. But even then, it's really helpful not to go from convincing and to, to sort of get into this conveying mode. Like how do I convey the information? For the reason that, um, obviously, like, I don't need to tell you why the flat earther benefits from hearing my beliefs, my beliefs, because in this case, my beliefs would be true, right? So they're, they're going to benefit from this for sure. But that doesn't mean that even though I have the right position here, that I'm not benefiting from explaining that to the flat earther, because here's the thing. I mean, if you ask me right now to try to give a convincing argument of why the earth is flat. I can tell you I would fail. I mean, I, I can say things like, well, scientists say so. And I've seen pictures. But by the way, I don't actually know how you tell if a picture is doctored. Right? I can use some logical arguments. Like, how could that be a conspiracy that everybody kept? But I don't actually know, like, the science of it. And I know there is science. I know people shoot lasers and you can see, you know, the stuff and there's stuff about calculating across the bend of the horizon and things like that. But that's about as eloquent as I can get on it. So if I'm going to now convey to somebody who believes that the earth is flat, why I believe what I do, I'm going to have to do some Googling. I'm going to have to do some research. So I'm becoming better informed in the process of trying to tell somebody why I believe what I do. And I am now going to know, not as a matter of fiat, right, just I think it's true, but I am now going to understand that belief better. You know, I mean, da Daniel Dennett um, talks about this a lot, like beliefs as memes versus beliefs as possessions. And, and it's this very interesting way of thinking about beliefs as almost like a virus that's sort of like trying to find hosts. And for me, the earth is round is a meme. Because I didn't come, I don't like really possess that belief because I don't understand why I believe it. It's just something that has taken hold of me. And I have no doubt, I mean, I, I, I would bet a gazillion dollars that, that I've got the right belief, but it would be better if I possessed the belief. It was, a, if it was a thing that I owned that I really understood. And I can get to there by having a really good conversation with someone who believes something different than I do. So I, I think that this is really important. Take, first, let's just start with take argue away and let's talk about conveying why you believe what you do and informing the conversation, not just to inform the other person, but to inform yourself. Because your friend wasn't allowing for the idea that he might be wrong, which I think is kind of interesting. The, the second thing, and I think this is actually like a really important thing to think about, is that when people hear somebody who has an opinion that is different than something that they believe, right? When, when their beliefs are in conflict, people can really hear that as a, an attack on their identity. Because it's like, what is your identity? I think it's just the things you believe. It's the models of the world. It's what you think is true of the world or what you think is true of yourself. You know, I mean, 
So when I tell you that something that you believe isn't right, we, we, we feel, we feel attacked. We feel like you're trying to tear this fabric that forms my identity. Um, so one of the things that conveying does is, is it helps that a little bit because you're not arguing with someone, you're not telling them that you're wrong and, and so on and so forth. But, but the other thing that you can do actually that's very purposeful to help with that problem is to push things to the future. In other words, not to talk about things that somebody has done in the past or things that somebody believed in the past, but what, what might be true of the future. So, so I'll give you like a simple example. This is in my book. Um, you're talking to a friend and they're like, the last 10 people I went on dates with were jerks. I'm sure you've all had these conversations before. Somebody who has like the terrible dating history. And, you know, I mean, as people will, they'll process that in a way where they're saying like, I can't believe all these jerks, you know, you know, all, all people are jerks that, you know, they're all, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm totally become a misanthrope. I hate all humankind because everybody's a jerk. And I think if you're like most people, what's going through your head is are something along the lines of like, well, maybe you're picking jerks or maybe you're the jerk on the date and somebody reacts to you and becomes like, I know all this stuff is going through your head. Now to, to the, to your friend's point, most people won't say that, right? Because they'll just sort of let it lie and they'll be like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes. You have a terrible dating history and you're very unlucky that somehow randomly you're running into every jerk in the world. Um, but a way to handle that is to actually not disagree in any way that this is the appropriate narrative for what's happened in the past. And instead to say, that's really, that's horrible. I'm so sorry that that's happened to you. And yes, it's really hard to find a good person these days. Um, what do you think you might do? Like, for, you know, you're, I assume you're going to go on another date. Like, how do you think you could avoid, how do you think you could avoid the jerks? Like on your next date? Now, what's interesting about that is in order to answer that, you have to circle back and think about what your what your choosing algorithm has been. <laughs> like you still have to examine your past picking algorithm, but I didn't make you do it. I didn't confront you on it. I said your picking algorithm is fine. I, I have no fantastic. quibble. I have no quibble with your picking algorithm. But what now let's think about how could we, we could alter your picking algorithm going forward. Like what could you do differently in the future? Right. And, and it just completely takes it out of the identity range because who we think we're going to be in the future is it's kind of like we sort of think of that person as a stranger, whereas everything we've done up to this point is us. So let's just take it away from us and think about, OK, what are you going to do on the next time? Um, and it's a way for you to bring to the out, not just for you to bring the outside view to that person, but actually for the person to get to the outside view on their own. To actually start thinking about, like, how would I view this? Again, like how would I view my picking algorithm as an object that I could sort of take apart and examine in a more objective way, which is really what the outside view is. It's just more objective. So it just kind of it helps somebody get there without feeling like they've been confronted. This is very good marriage advice, I'll add. <laughs> yeah. okay, thank you. Maybe that'll be my next career. <laughs> I, I'm just caught up on it. I love this approach and it just resonates with me because I don't know, the word shame keeps coming up. Like if we said, look back at all your dating choices, where did you go wrong? It's not like, okay, you want me to inventory the 4,500 mistakes I made in the last year. This is painful, but just flipping it around to what are one or two things you could try in your next date or in the next week? Suddenly it's not a negative self-reflection, but okay, what could you test? Where are these levers? Where are these opportunities? 
Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that this goes back actually to, to what we were talking about before with like, what is somebody's state of knowledge at the time? Because I, I think it ties back into this idea of like, how would you sort of in retrospect, start thinking about how to combat things like hindsight bias, right? Which is this idea that you sort of knew it all along or, I mean, you can see this with Clinton, right? There's all these people who are like, I knew she was making a mistake at the time. It's like, really? Because you certainly didn't write an article about it. Um, is that what we discover after the fact, like obviously always inf new information is revealing itself to us all the time. I mean, I th don't think there's ever been a time where that's more obvious than with coronavirus, right? Like every single week there's some new thing, you know, it's like, it is aerosols. It's not aerosols. No, actually it is. Or, um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm just like, asymptomatic people can spread it. No, they can't. Yes, they can. No, they, yes, they can. It's like, okay. You know, so you're, you obviously you're always getting, but that's true whether it's coronavirus or not. Like things are always going to reveal themselves to, the, to you after the fact. Like in the Clinton case, obviously this polling error revealed itself after the fact that you could actually dig into and understand exactly who was being um, under, underrepresented or underpolled in that case. So the idea is not to look back and say, see, here's this thing that you missed. So shame on you. The only shame is not doing the work to find out that you missed it so that you could include it in the process going forward. Because guess what? We don't have perfect information. Last time I checked, I'm not an omniscient being, and I don't think you are either. And so you're never going to catch it all. That's the whole point. That's why judgments are subjective. So when you sort of, it's always better to be looking forward. So when there's some piece of information that you find out would have, would have been very good to know in terms of your decision, you just ask yourself the question, could I have known it beforehand? So uh, mostly the answer is going to be no. And occasionally the answer is going to be yes. And if the answer is yes, that means it should be something knowable going forward and you should include that in your decision process. If the answer is no, you just ask yourself a further question. Um, uh, it wasn't knowable, but could I know it going forward? Mostly the answer will be no. Occasionally it will be yes. Yes, now this is actually something now I could model this in and I could know this going forward. Um, and if that's the case, then then know it going forward. So, so, you know, as an example, actually, this would be a good example. It's not knowable that there's a polling error going at the time. It's just not. But after the fact, once we know it, we can say, okay, well, now we have a new way to think about polls and we can start thinking about whether we're actually sampling across all of those populations well. Um, and not with specific, a specific eye on, on white non-college educated voters. It's really just across all the populations because you also wouldn't want to overcompensate either. And you can say, like, let's start thinking much more clearly about what are the segments of the population that we care about are we getting a representative sample of them? And that now becomes something you can include in your process going forward. But none of it is for finger pointing. As you said, Kai, none of it is for shame. It's all like, look, we're learning, growing beings. And one would assume that throughout our lives, we're accumulating knowledge. And so what we care about is, is the knowledge that's going into our decision getting better and are our models of the world improving. And that, that's really all you care about without any finger pointing. There's a really good, um, there's a good uh, thing that sort of comes out of that, like a, a second order effect that comes from that, which is that you're more likely to update your models then because it becomes less identity driven. It's like, well, that's kind of what I knew now, but my identity is wrapped in what, what do I, what am I thinking going forward? Am I actually improving? And, you know, Dan Kahan at Yale talks about identity protective 
cognition and where we get into people really sort of sticking with their models of the world and being pretty impervious to evidence in terms of the way that they're changing the way they think. And this is, you know, some people are going to say, oh, this is just for like uneducated, uh, you know, voters or whatever. It's not. This is for subject matter experts, too. People who are very deep into a subject have very, very strong models of the world. And this happens to them probably more so. Um, is that we that becomes part of our identity, the way that we think about the world, whether it's our political identity or, you know, our expertise in the way that we're modeling quirks. I don't care. Um, we, it becomes part of our identity and we just start to feel like any information becomes an attack on that. And so we'll process that new information in a way to support the model and strengthen the model as opposed to processing the information, something, you know, what more objectively in order to improve our, our models going forward. But I think part of that is because we feel like it's an attack from the past. Like, oh, if I made a decision based on this model and now you tell me this model is wrong later, now I feel bad about myself. My, you know, you've hurt my identity because I feel like I didn't make the best decision. Well, who cares? Who has? Who has? We don't have very much information. Like nobody's ever made a perfect decision in their whole life. I mean, except when there's no luck and no hidden information. I'm sure like Gary Kasparov has made a perfect decision in chess. Yeah. I have no doubt. But that's not, you know, we're not usually playing chess and we're not usually Gary Kasparov. As we go through this conversation, it strikes me that this updating your model or updating the way you make these decisions, is this information relevant or not? Should it be relevant in the future? Really uh, uh, aligns nicely with your recommendations on, I think it in the later chapters, on a checklist for decision making or a checklist for information sharing, where the checklist is, in a sense, the model of this is the information we want to gather before we start making the decision. Oh, let's update the checklist, which even further removes it from, oh, this was a poor decision on your part. And moves it more towards, oh, our checklist, our model here was not perfect or did not have this relevant bit of information and let's update and move forward. I am I right in that? Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that particular effect of a checklist, but I, I, I might, I would, I think I would, that's a huge favorite to be right. Um, I think that's really insightful. Uh, and not an insight I had sort of thought about for myself. So my concern with, with checklists and, this would be like, for example, like, let's say that you're trying to hire somebody, um, you know, you should, you should not just sort of think about the broad categories that you care about, but you should break those down and to understand, in order to understand, like, what would it mean for the person to be strong in this particular area, right? And I'm sure like Reuven or Kai or you, you could come up with like, uh, or Jeremy, you could come up with, if I said, like, you were hiring someone into a coding position, you wouldn't want someone just to rate, like, how strong of a coder are they? I'm sure that there are lots and lots of subcategories like mediating judgments for that broader judgment that you would care about, right? And I don't, I don't know what those are because I'm not I'm not a coder myself, but you would understand like things around like efficiency of the code or I'm sure is one like how elegant is it? How easy it for, is it for someone else to look at the code and actually understand it pretty quickly? I'm just making these up. I could be totally off. No, those are those are good ones. That's thank pretty you. Good, pretty good. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So so anyway, we would so we would discuss this. We would discuss this and we would figure out as we're going into the hiring process prior to having seen a single candidate, we would we would say, so what are the things that we care about? And let's say one of them is just like how strong are they in coding? And we're gonna rate that as a category. We would figure out what those mediating judgments are. What are those what are those ways that we can understand what it means to be strong as a coder? And that's separate apart from anything like, uh, you know, what's the likelihood that we can retain this candidate? Because we know, like, when it comes to engineering, uh, there's a lot of turnover and retention is a problem. So we might want to have that as a category. 
Um, you know, how are they going to fit in with the team? Well, it can't, we can't just rate that as a broad category. So, well, what are the values of the team? And then we have to rate them on how, how much they align on those values, for example. So we would create some kind of rubric. The reason why I want to do that prior to seeing a candidate is that when we've already started to make a decision, which we will as soon as we've seen a single candidate, um, we will start to sort of highlight and lowlight parts of the narrative. So we'll focus on certain areas. Like if we like the candidate, we'll focus on certain areas where they're strong. If we kind of are negative on the candidate, we'll focus on the areas where they're, where they're weak. So we're highlighting and lowlighting all the time and constructing these narratives. So the way that I sort of talk about a checklist in the book is that that helps to discipline the narrative. It helps us to make sure that we are covering all of our bases, that we understand what are the things that we as a, as a group have decided are important inputs into this decision. And it makes it so that they all have to be discussed and you have to be thinking about all of them as opposed to something that fits in with what your desired outcome is. That being said, Kai, I think that your insight is really astute, that it also takes it separate from your identity even more so that it's about, okay, we've gone through a few candidates, we've all used the rubric, is there anything that we feel like we're missing or we want to change? And now it becomes about updating that checklist to try to create a more accurate decision um, as opposed to about your identity. And I am so stealing that from you, just letting you know. <laughs> Steal it, use it, share it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say one of the chapters that hit really close to home for me was the one called Power of Negative Thinking. Um, and you you mentioned this in the in the chapter that, you know, in our culture, we kind of have this, we sort of give mystical powers to the power of positive thinking. And people believe that, oh, if you just visualize what you want and think about what you want, that it's going to come to you. And that that leads a lot of people to kind of have a problematic inverse of that where they think if you think about the negative things, you're going to attract it to yourself and you're going to make things go wrong just by virtue of being aware that they could go wrong. And like when I was in engineering school, I had a number of courses that focused pretty heavily on one of your jobs as an engineer is to think about what could go wrong, think about ways to prevent those things from going wrong and think about ways that you could recover if they do go wrong. And I've had you know, relationships that have kind of gotten rocky because people were like, oh man, you're always so negative. And <laughs> then when I dig in and say, you know, what, what are you talking about? I, I don't think of myself as a negative person. They're like, well, you're always thinking about, you know, how could this go wrong? And that is just so negative. And yeah, like, how do you, how, what are good ways to get people to kind of come along on that journey and realize that there is value in gaming out negative scenarios because you want to avoid these scenarios. So there's more than just value. I mean, it's really big value. So, you know, I encourage people to look in the book um, at uh, um, Gabriel Odenjian's work, um, which I which I cite in there. Um, uh, and she's really shown that this type of mental contrasting work, what you just described, which is like, let me think about the ways that things could go wrong and what will I do about it? And so on and so forth really it, it's huge increases in success. Like just, just as an example, I think they, she had, um, she looked at people who were in a weight loss program who were obese. They needed to lose at least 50 pounds um, and just divided the, them into two groups. And one group was doing kind of positive visualization 
And the other was doing this kind of mental contrasting work that you were just talking about. And the people doing the mental contrasting work lost, I think, on average 26 pounds more. I mean, that, that's not a small thing. It's a big thing. You know, Gary Klein has said, I mean, if you think if you think about the fact that, well, I, not the fact, but my opinion, that really what a decision is, is just a prediction of the future, right? If, I, if I'm thinking about, do I want to order the chicken or the fish? And I order the chicken, I'm saying, I think my future on average is going to be better if I order the chicken than the fish. And what else is a decision? Um, so we would assume that if you can get a better vision of the future, a more complete vision of the future, that your decisions will be better. Um, Gary Klein has shown that when you're thinking about the ways that things go wrong, you know, if you do pre-mortems, you're producing about 30% more reason. I mean, uh, yeah, 30% more reasons um, as to kind of what the future might hold or why things might go wrong. I mean, that's got to help your decisions if you're identifying more obstacles that are in your path, right? So, yeah, I mean, so basically when you think about the power of positive thinking, step, thing number one is this. You should always have positive goals. And I think that's where people like are like, why are you so negative? It's like, I'm not saying I think I'm going to fail. I have the same positive goals you do. I'm trying to succeed at them. I'm like totally rah-rah on myself. I believe that I can achieve all my goals. The difference is that I think that the way that I plan my route is going to be superior to the way that you plan your route. That is all. And this is what I would say to anybody who's saying, oh, you're so negative. I'd be like, do you want me to hand you an atlas or would you like to use ways? Tell me which one you want. Because if you use an atlas, you're going to be able to see your destination and you're going to see a road and it's going to be a clear road. By definition, it's an atlas. It's a paper map. And you're going to look at that and go, oh, look, if I take route one, boy, I'll just get to my destination. Well, anyone who's ever lived in L.A. knows that would be a very bad way to try to get anywhere. Because you could look at something and say, oh, there's only a mile here and it's like two hours later. You know, and then uh, yeah, there's another route that's like five miles, but it gets you there three times as fast. So so that's why we have something like Waze. What is Waze as an app doing? It's actually identifying all the failure points. It's saying there's a speed trap over here and there's traffic over here and someone got in an accident over here. There's a road closure over here. So here, guess what I'm going to do? You've seen that it's there, so I'm going to help you avoid it. And if I can't help you avoid it, I'm going to show it to you so you can do something about it. You could either leave extra time or you can call the person who you're supposed to meet and let them know that Waze is telling you that there's an accident and you might be 15 minutes late, all of which are going to produce better results for you. And that's true of your decision making as well. So you don't want to use an atlas to make decisions. You want to use a paper map. And I think that what you said is so true that this thing about, you know, if you imagine success, it will come. And people say, well, they're not saying if you imagine failure, failure will happen. It's like, well, first of all, it depends who you read in the space. But mostly, no, you're right. They're not saying that out loud. But obviously it's implied. Because if you're saying that the road to success is to imagine success, what am I supposed to infer about imagining failure? Obviously, I'm going to infer that that's the way to, to, to fail. I have to infer the obverse. And then you get a book like The Secret. And that's basically what ends up happening. It's the end point. It's like the fall of the Roman Empire for decision making. It's a failed state of decision making, right? When you think about the power of positive thinking, it is the failed state of the power of positive thinking, which is you take it kind of to its extreme. And what they say is, 
you know, positive thoughts, not just positive thoughts, but the thing you're thinking about, a check in the mail or your loved one, uh, you know, proposing to you, that if you think about that, it will happen, that exact thing. Um, and if I imagine traffic, that I will be in traffic the next morning. And worse yet, if I am in traffic, I must have imagined traffic. That is also said explicitly in that book with this very wacky causal mechanism that your thoughts have magnetic, you know, a magnetic quality, which is true if you're doing like an EEG or an EMG, but that doesn't mean like somehow it's like, you know, what? Anyway, and so it attracts those things to you in the universe. I mean, this is like an unprovable hypothesis because basically it's like, well, if bad things happen to you, you must not have thought right. I mean, it's the worst of, you know, Anyway, whatever, it's like, you know, the people quoted are like metaphysicists, which means not a physicist, um, but whatever, and visionary, you know. But the, but, but the point is, like, as wacky as that sounds, it's not actually that wacky when you think about this body of work of the power of positive thinking. It actually fits kind of neatly in there. The wackiness is that they actually decide they're going to tell you what this causal mechanism is, which makes no sense. Only a metaphysicist would come up with it. But, but... You know, but other than the fact that they actually explicitly state what the causal mechanism is, I don't think they're saying anything that different because, Jeremy, you're right. It's it, the, op the opposite is implied. And they're just saying, let's just go with it. And I just don't, I mean, I don't know how that helps you make decisions. I would rather, like, you know, you were taught, I want to know what lies in the past so that I can avoid it. That's the way that I can succeed. That's the way I can get to work on time. By the way, I laughed out loud very, very hard when reading about the secret in your book because I'd heard people talk about this book for a while. I was like, oh, she's going to tell me what's in this book. And I said, that's what it's all about. And then you said, like, pro tip, this is all total nonsense. Don't believe it. And excellent summary there. Yes. yes. I actually can I I'll tell you something funny about the secret. So I don't know if you know, but it was an Oprah's book club recommendation. I had no idea. Right. Okay. <laughs> No, and, and by the way, I'm serious. Like the people quoted it, like one person's title is visionary. Um, and then there's like a metaphysicist. There are no actual scientists who are quoted. None. So that should be a clue. But whatever. People, you know, people like this book. I'm sure I'll get like angry emails about how great the secret is. I'm sorry. I just don't agree with you. Um, but anyway, um, so, uh, so this book came out like, gosh, I want to say maybe like around 2007, 2008, something like that. Someone can go look it up. I cited in the, I cited in, in how to decide so people can look that up in the references. And when it came out, I was so just like my head was exploding. I was like, what is this? Like, how could it possibly be that if I imagine traffic, I will end up in traffic the next morning. I am not a magical being. And can you imagine like all the competing magnetic thoughts? Like what, so what happened to all the other people who were in traffic? Did I just screw them with the magnetism of my thoughts? And by the way, are my magnetic thoughts more powerful than this poor schmuck over here who was only imagining like not being in traffic? Like what? It makes no sense. Once you have like all the people in traffic, like what? So anyway, I decided when I was, when I, the original way that I thought about thinking of bets, was calling it the actual secret. Total conniption fit over this book. Now, funnily enough, I ended up not even mentioning the secret and thinking of bets, but I got around to it because I had a plan that I was going to say something about this book. But like, think about it. 
you have all these people in traffic. Like whose thoughts won? Was it only the people who had the bad thoughts who ended up in traffic, even though all those people have to take that that route to work? It, like some of those people must not have been thinking negatively about traffic. Did they just lose because their thoughts aren't magnetic enough? Like I, it's I, anyway. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to calm down. <laughs> I'm going to calm down. Okay. Here's a pro tip. If you're reading a book that is trying to say something scientific and the person that they're quoting has the title visionary, you should put the book away. There you go. It's a good idea. <laughs> Point taken. Sound advice. That's it. I'm tempted just to update my LinkedIn title to visionary after this, just for a day or seven. See what I, you totally I'll, I'll, I won't even do it. You I'm totally going to should. think about updating my title on LinkedIn and let's just see what manifests from that. Oh, I wonder if that will happen. Maybe people will start calling you a visionary. <laughs> it's a perfect test. But like, could you even imagine, like, here's the deal. Like, let's think about somebody who actually is a visionary, right? Like Steve Jobs. He wasn't, he wasn't like Steve Jobs. Visionary. Like, I just want to know, like, who who's, like, titling themselves visionary? Like, that's a then weird go, thing to title yourself. There should be a meta-visionary. A met, whoa, that would be good. That would be good. <laughs> I like that, meta-visionary. Like, that would be, like, you think you're a visionary, raise. Meta-visionary. I... I'd love to learn a little more about the type of consulting work you do, uh, who an average client is, what a project looks like. Can you tell us and our listeners a little bit about what that side of your business is like? Sure. So, um, so I mean, I deal with clients who are making lots of very high stakes decisions under uncertainty. And, and you know, so they're making subjective judgments, obviously. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of it's in finance. That would be mainly where I end up, although not the only place I end up. I would say probably about 60% of my work maybe is in finance. Um, and what I'm doing is really trying to set up these kinds of systems to really improve decision making in terms of how are you extracting information? How are you thinking about the decisions? And, and in particular, not just about improving decision quality in terms of the systems. How is your team interacting with each other? How are you? How are you eliciting feedback? Like the hiring example that I went through. Like how are you actually constructing what those mediating judgments are for any type of decision you're doing, not just who you hire, um, but maybe you know what investments are you making? Those kinds of things. So I, I help them to to construct those tools and systems for really improving decision quality as you're moving into the decision. Um, help them to uh, facilitate conversations. Um, think about how are you actually having the conversation once you understand what the, the spread of sort of the dispersion of opinion is across the group. Um, but also thinking about how are you really actually closing feedback loops fast enough and in a way that allows you to actually learn something from them. So a lot of the clients that I work with, um, they're making investments where they're not going to really know what the exit looks like for a really long time. And so the question is, do you just sort of sit on your hands and say, well, what can I do then? I'll find out in five years or whatever, 10 years. Or are there ways that you can wrap into your decision making process um, states of the world that have to be true in a near term horizon um, for you to decide that this would be a good decision for you to make? Um, and if you can actually make those things explicit in your decision process, then you, you can actually start to close those feedback loops and make sure you're calibrated to whatever the environment is that you're making decisions about. 
And knowing that there's going to be that kind of look back and accountability actually improves the quality of the decision in the moment. So it's this really interesting kind of way that these things interact that creating these kinds of ways, these mediating judgments and actually thinking very specifically about what are the nearer term forecasts that I want to make um, that are already implicit in the explicit decision that I'm actually going to make whether I want to do this thing or not. Um, that type of discipline around what are the things I'm actually deciding about, what are the inputs in the decision help. But then there's this extra layer, which is that people knowing there's going to be a look back actually gets you more to the outside view because it gets you thinking about, well, in the future, I'm going to have to look back at this. Um, and that also improves decision quality. So I'm really sort of just constructing these, these processes and helping to facilitate these conversations um, uh, and really thinking about how do you break decisions down into the component parts that are actually going to make for useful discussion and better decision quality. Um, and then the other thing that I'm generally doing with, with groups is um, thinking about how through sort of data projects, you can actually answer questions that maybe as I'm coming in, they feel that, that there isn't, aren't really good answers about. But if you're, if you're actually breaking it down into its parts, you actually could find the data. Um, and then I wrap that into the decision processes. So a lot, a lot of times uh, I start uh, putting in processes that are, are collecting data that's not going to be useful for three or four years. But it's in the understanding that, boy, we wish we kind of had it now because then we could actually close these loops better. Um, so it's really kind of digging in in that way and, and thinking about strategy and decision processes. Um, another thing that, that I do is just sort of thinking about, um, so some of what I do is more in the sort of the sales category. And it's thinking about like, what's the way to talk to people? How do you actually strategize about when you want to slam doors, when you want to open them up, when you want to do things incrementally, how you actually get somebody to be your ally um, as opposed to someone who's sort of on the opposite side of the table, that kind of stuff that has more to do with negotiation. Um, and I do that as well. So it's, it's like a world of things, but it's all kind of in this strategic decision-making space and really bringing the cognitive science and what we know from the science uh, married with me understanding in particular how you, you do this outside of an academic environment and move it into a very high stakes environment. Um, and that's kind of, that, that's sort of what I do. That's what I do on a daily basis when I'm, you know, and then I also do my writing, but that's my consulting side. Yeah, that's cool as heck. Uh, when we were chatting before the recording started, we touched briefly on pricing and you mentioned uh, solving for the backdoor and freelancing. I guess I'm curious on both fronts, how in the past or how do you currently price yourself and uh, how do you sort of route around hourly billing? Yeah, so uh, I hate hourly billing. Good. Um, as I put it to one of my clients, I don't know how to charge you for my time in the shower. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so let me explain that's, what I mean by that. Don't, don't yeah. take that the wrong way. <laughs> I can see your mind going into the gutter, but that is not what I mean. Um, we all know that we, we, we're in the shower. We're not just showering. Like we're thinking. And so a lot of times, you know, I'll have like a, a lot of what I do when I'm first getting to know a client is I actually just observe their meetings. I actually don't say anything. I'm a silent observer and I'll, I'll, I'll observe hours of meetings, either like in person or now I'll ask them to record them. Um, um, or, you know, I can be a silent observer on Zoom with my video off now or whatever, but I'm actually just watching the way that they sort of naturally are interacting with each other. And then I'm sort of seeing where the conversations and the meetings are kind of going south or not being efficient, not, not really being productive. Um, and then I start thinking for that group, because every group is different. So, some things you can kind of just sort of get off the shelf and say, do this thing. 
for sure. But there's lots of things that are particular to the group that you're talking to, particular to the types of decisions that they're making and the personalities um, that are that are uh, in the room. And the language, a lot of it is like the language that they're already using. And you're trying to sort of solve for some of these problems that you're seeing. And so how do I do that? Like, I don't even know how to do that on an hourly basis. Like, I mean, there's two problems. One is the shower time problem where I'm like, you know, out, I'm playing tennis or I'm walking around or I'm driving to the store and I'm just sort of in my head, I'm sort of thinking through what it is I observed and saw. And I don't, I don't really know how to bill for that. That's weird. Um, and then the other problem, of course, is that hourly building is billing is weird when you have this just sort of like all of this experience and education and knowledge that's sort of coming into what you're bringing in. So yes, I may come and sort of help you to do something and it may only take me an hour to explain, but there's a whole lifetime worth of my work that's kind of going into this thing that I'm now going to, that I'm now going to help you to do. And so I, it's hard to price that into the hour as well. Um, and what ends up happening, which I try to explain to people is that the reason why I don't like the hourly billing is because if I charged you what I should be charging you, you would think that it wasn't fair, but it's a little bit like, look, I mean, people go to law school, they pay like $250,000 for law school. Why? Because it's going to have payoffs as you go down the road. So if you trust that I have payoffs, but I think it just makes it for like this weird contentious environment where I feel like I can't really charge the right amount per hour. Um, and then also I'm just like undercharging because I don't really know how to charge for all this other time. And so I kind of end up undercharging in two ways. So what I, what I really do with my clients is generally what I'll say is like, look, I'm, I'm going to quote you this particular hourly rate. We're going to do 10 hours. And I believe I'm going to bet on the fact that after I do 10 hours with you, you're not going to want to stop at 10. But I'm going to tell you that after those 10 hours, it's not going to be hourly anymore. We're going to be aligned. Um, and that's kind of how I do it. And it, it's worked out pretty well for me because people end up getting aligned with me. Um, and then I actually end up getting to consult in a way that I actually enjoy, enjoy more, which is I end up embedded. Um, and I just prefer that. I like, I like going incredibly deep. So, uh, you know, I feel like there's kind of two, two, what I discovered is I don't like the in-between stuff. I don't like the trainings that much where I come in and I'm doing like a half day or a full day and then I sort of leave kind of knowing that the stuff really isn't going to get implemented with fidelity. I don't think I'm doing them a lot of, maybe I'm helping them change the way they think, but I'm not doing them as much of a favor as I think they think I am. Um, and I sort of feel dissatisfied because I feel like I, I, I probably am doing them maybe even a disservice. I don't know. Um, I like to either do light touch. I do an hour keynote and I just sort of give you conceptually some things to think about, right? Without the illusion that I've given you depth, which I think the training actually does a little bit. I think it gives you the illusion that you know something much more than you actually do, which I'd like not to do. So either light touch, here are some things to think about where you don't have an illusion that there's been any depth or actually go deep. And those are the two places that I like to live. So that's really where my work ends up being. And when I go deep, I'm going to be aligned with you. And we're just, I'm going to make a bet that that's okay, that it's going to work out for you because I'm willing to bet on my, on what I'm going to give to you. And that's kind of where we go with that. I mean, I'd love to hear what you, you, you guys do as well. I mean, in terms of what you think about it. I, I think we're all pretty much aligned in a hatred of hourly billing. Uh, 
<laughs> I focus myself more on uh, what I term productized consulting offers. So fixed fee, fixed scope, fixed timeline. You're buying a widget, an SEO audit, whatever for X dollars. But I also like value-based pricing, which you might also do when you mentioned alignment. We are, okay, the upside for us working together, you know, it'll be five years down the line is X. So I'm charging you a fair portion of X. So we are aligned in terms of outcome, inputs, and process. Yeah, I actually take it a step further, which is if they don't do well, I don't do well. Mm, wonderful. So I don't just price it on EV. I actually say, like, let I'll take the volatility with you as well. Yeah. That's a powerful way to build trust. Yeah, you know, I, I believe in what I do. I mean, it's it's science-driven. It's science-based. And, you know. I mean, I switched to doing training full-time 10, 15 years ago or so. And I have never been happier because a company will call me up and I'll say, this is the price per course and done. Now you can break it down into hourly and this and that. But that's like from their perspective, they are getting me coming in and teaching. And so I, it, we don't have to haggle over, oh, wait, but you taught for you know half an hour more, half an hour less. What's involved? It, it, it's so, so, so much easier and better. Yeah. So that's when I was doing trainings, I did the same kind of pricing. It's like, here's the cost. It's a, this is not an hourly thing. You're just getting the content. Um, and I, I think it depends a little bit on the content, how valuable the training is. When I'm trying to get people to, to de-bias, to reduce noise and that kind of thing, it's just a heavier lift. So I can come in and I can do a training for a day, but the kind of stuff that I'm talking about needs constant, it needs constant care it needs constant vigilance, right? So I think that's why for me personally, and given what I do, I don't find trainings very satisfying. There's other things, there's other areas where I think trainings are absolutely the way to go and it's gonna get you what you want. I think for something that just requires more sort of more guardrails and vigilance, I, I think it's not a great thing for me to be doing. I think it's, it's, a, it's a little bit more harm than good. It's sort of the same thing, it's like know what, know what type of decision you're making, like know what your content is and understand what, what the delivery is that's going to get the client to the best place. Right. And for some things that's going to be like, look, I can come in and I can talk to you for an hour and I can fix this for other things. It's like, if you're doing an audit, it's like, well, you can just hand me the data and the material and I can sort of look through it and then I can really give you some great solutions. And then you'll put those solutions in. We're kind of done. Right. Um, uh, so some of it, I, you can give me the data and I can be doing it on my own. Others are, I can train you to do this thing. Um, and that's great. And then other things, I think you need someone who's sort of vigilantly doing it alongside you for, for, you know, for a long period of time. Um, and that's just kind of the, the more the world that I'm in, which I think is why I found in particular the hourly stuff very dissatisfying. I didn't, I don't like that. Um, and I found that I just at the point, some point just said no more trainings because I don't think that it's something that I'm doing good. I'm not doing any good with. So if somebody's listened to this interview. They say, hey, I want to read How to Decide. This sounds like a great book. Uh, when and where can they pick up a copy? Uh, so, well, I think we talked about it. Right? It was supposed to come out on September 15th. Uh, the release date is now October 13th. Um, so that's the day that it's getting released and you can find it in all the usual places. I mean, if you want to go find the links to where you can find it, you can go on andyduke.com, but I imagine everybody at this point knows where they can buy a book. Um, and if you go to any of those places where you know where you can buy a book, you will find this book and you may order it there. <laughs> Excellent. 
we always like in our episodes to wrap with uh, just a quick picks section where the panelists, the hosts, the guests, we just go around and share a book, a resource, a website, just something that we pick for the week. It could be related to the topic or not. Uh, uh, but I figure now is a perfect time for us to go around, share picks. So for my pick this week, I started using this new app, a web app in a phone app called Exist.io. And I've always been a big fan of these different apps that pull in like my sleep data, my uh, exercise data, my mood data, whatever it might be, and then just present it to me, surface it in a nice and easy to read uh, format or tell me any correlations. And I've only been using Exist for a couple of days, but it's been really nice just to have it as a spot where all this data is being pulled into and being able to look at it once a week or once a day and just say, oh, you know, I've been feeling off. How's my sleep doing? Oh, I've been sleeping, you know, two hours less on average what could be contributing to it. So my pick for the week is uh, exist.io, and we'll have that in show notes. So um, everyone in my family really likes to cook, my wife, me, my three kids, um, and we have a ton of cookbooks. And increasingly, the cookbooks sit on the shelf, and we've been getting to a massive rut over the number last number of months, being at home and cooking and making the same thing again and again. Um, and last week we decided to take the plunge and buy a subscription to the New York Times cooking site, an app. It is amazing, amazing. With a huge number of recipes, everything we've made from there has come out spectacularly. And you can filter on vegetarian, vegan. I have a vegan daughter and like everyone else in the house except for me is vegetarian. And like it tells you what ingredients you need. I have been really blown away by this app. And it was like $40 for the whole year. So now, of course, everyone's saying, now we really should be getting rid of those cookbooks, right? I'm like, wait, 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 I really like them. But uh, if, if you're into cooking, um, I strongly recommend it. Uh, the New York Times cooking separate app and website. My pick this week, actually, uh, I'll, I'll pick a book that I haven't read in a little while, but if um, along with Annie's uh, book, which is awesome, uh, if uh, people are curious more about the um, not at the more like power of negative thinking um, book that I was introduced to about, I think it was last year that the antidote happiness for people who can't stand positive thinking is a really uh, interesting um, exploration into that and like different, different philosophies that make up like, yeah, like how to, how to do more of that, like almost that yeah, negative thinking in a very positive way to like, yeah, that I've found uh, several of the um, uh, concepts. Yeah. Really align well with a, uh, your book, Annie. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. My pick this week is uh, two part split keyboards. Uh, I have kind of had wrist uh, and carpal tunnel problems for a long time. And just this week have uh, got in two different keyboards that are split in the middle. They're two parts. So you can have your hands kind of farther apart at shoulder width instead of kind of all hunched together over the keyboard. Uh, and I can already tell that's going to make a big difference in just the way that my hands and arms feel at the end of the day. So if for anybody that spends a lot of time on a keyboard, I'd recommend looking into those. So well, actually, I just ordered a desktop thing to make so I could stand. Well, but So I can't say that that's my pick, though, because I don't have it yet. Ruben, I'm going to go the opposite direction of you. So uh, I love cooking. I love cooking from scratch. One of the things, because I was very busy when my kids were young, was like, it was always like homemade breakfast, homemade dinner. And then um, my children all came home during COVID and they were home for about six months and I had seven adult humans in the house and I'm the cook. So once they all left to their various locations to, to um, social distance on their own, 
I said to my husband, like, I was like, I'm a little done at the moment. Like I, I just cooked so many meals. I, but I don't, you know, I don't want to, I'm not, I don't want to eat frozen. I am, I'm a vegan Ruben. I don't eat processed food. And I just haven't, haven't ever found like a meal delivery service that I felt like the food was actually like really good and not boring and whatever. Um, and I don't want a meal kit because I know how to cook something from scratch. I don't, you know, I, the whole point is I didn't, I didn't want to cook so much. So I found something called Cook Unity, which is amazing. So it's essentially like, uh, think about it as like Airbnb, but personal chefs. So each individual chef is like posting the meals that they'll do that week. And you can search through all the different personal chefs and then they're delivering those meals to you and you just heat them up. Uh, and as I say, the food's amazing and you can sort of, and that, it gives you a much broader way to sort of like range of meals that you can choose from. And you can put in like any dietary restrictions you want. Um, so I can put in vegan, I also don't eat gluten and I can put both of those things in and then it will pull up the meals that are available for me, for my chef, from the different chefs. And so I'll get like meals from like seven, you know, four different chefs or seven different chefs. And then for my husband who has, he eats meat and whatever, I can put in his stuff and he can get his own things. And it's actually been amazing. And so now I'm like cooking, um, cause I really did need a break. I'm cooking like probably for us, like twice a week, three times a week for dinners. And then the rest of the time we're using the cook unity and it's like, I'm so happy with it. This is so cool. Kai, are you looking at I it? I am. I just pulled it up. Uh, when you said Airbnb for chefs, I'm like, holy shit, this is something I need to know more about. Uh, Isn't it cool? It's like, it's, it really is. It's like the best description. It's Airbnb, but personal chefs. Mm -hmm. So like for people who do not have a personal chef living in their house, you can have personal chef quality food. The other thing is like all of these things, the chefs are rated, the, the, not the chefs, but the meals themselves are rated. So you can be like, you know, raiders really hated like, this meal, but that you know, this one has like 4.5 stars. I'm gonna get that one. Yum, amazing. Strangely, they don't seem to deliver to Israel. Hmm. <laughs> uh, well, Not yet. Not yet. What are you gonna do? By the way, can I just say, Israel, vegan heaven. Indeed. Like when, Indeed. When I travel, it can be challenging, but not in Israel. Gotta say. That was the best place I've ever gone as a vegan where it's like I just sort of had to deal with the hotel food or whatever because the number of vegan options are ridiculous. And I don't have to worry about the dairy in my food, which is like great. Right. The only place that I've been to that's similar to Israel in that is Taiwan. Extraordinary. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Andy, this was a blast. I, I'm so happy you uh, joined us on this podcast episode and we got to have this conversation with you. I super enjoyed it and I think our listeners are going to love it. Thank you so much. This was, this was really great. I really enjoyed talking to you guys. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Business of Freelancing. If you enjoyed this episode, we strongly recommend you head over to the iTunes podcast store and leave us a generous five-star review. If you did not enjoy this podcast episode, we strongly encourage you to head over to the iTunes podcast store and leave us an enthusiastic five-star review and tell us what we could do better. We hope you tune in for our next episode of The Business of Freelancing, and you can always find our latest episodes in your podcast player of choice or by visiting our website, businessoffreelancing.com. Take care.